Right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together again on such a beautiful day here. We ask that you help us to really understand what is being said, particularly through these last few chapters. So we ask your blessing on our efforts today and as we go forward studying uh, the book of Revelation and hopefully living in accordance with what it is trying to tell us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. In the last couple chapters, uh, 17 through 20, uh, we talked about the destruction of Jerusalem, which the book here refers to as the uh, Whore of Babylon. Remember, Babylon, after the Babylon ex exile, the term Babylon was always used as sort of a dirty word and always in reference uh, to the horrible uh, period of time that the Jewish people had to spend in Babylon. And as you know, and I've mentioned this before, but just as a reference, when they went there, when they were conquered by the Babylonians and were carted off, not once, but twice, actually in the year 597 BC was a partial conquering of Israel, and then 10 years later in 587 BC was the complete conquering of Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, and the people were carted off to Babylon for approximately or almost uh, 50 years. Uh, when they were carted off, uh, they couldn't understand why why didn't God protect them? God promised as part of the covenant that he would protect them and give them uh, their own land. And now their land is being taken away from them and they are not being protected as they expected to be. In other words, they forgot that it was their own sinfulness that was prophesied by Isaiah and several of the other prophets as to their apostasy and uh, their neglect of the teachings of Moses. And so they were carted off, but it was during that time through the efforts of the prophet Ezekiel that they begin to realize why they were there. And with the studying of the book of Deuteronomy, they began to develop a totally different idea of what that covenant that was made way back with Abraham and renewed, renewed, renewed several times down uh, through the ages. But they began to realize uh, and look at it from a different point of view. And they started to study the book of uh, Deuteronomy, which was the essence of the law, and they came away saying that they were going to follow the law as God wanted them to, and they were going to do this, and they were going to do that. The only problem was that they went to the opposite extreme, from totally ignoring the teachings of Moses, 
they went and started worshiping the laws rather than worshiping God himself who gave them the laws. The laws, and even today, laws are not meant to be worshipped. They are guidelines as to how God wants to be worshipped and uh, actually communicated to and and with. He wants us to be a one-on-one uh, or it wants it to be a, have a one-on-one relationship so that we communicate with him and realize that God wants a personal relationship with each one of us. That was something that the Jewish people just really never, never got to. And part of the reason for the destruction of Jerusalem was not because the Jewish people crucified Christ. That was, yeah, the end result. But it was because they were using the temple, which became a symbol of God's presence within them, within the community of uh, Jewish people there, particularly in Jerusalem. It was a symbol of God's being their God and their being uh the chosen people. And this again led to pride. It wasn't what God wanted. Yes, God was in the temple, particularly in the Holy of Holies, but it wasn't because they were chosen because they were such great people. They were chosen for a reason. And that reason was to be a light to the other nations around them. And they just never got the message. Uh, in fact, they went just the opposite. They became an exclusive community of their own and excluded all those around them, which it was just the opposite of what God wanted. And so the reason, the primary reason for the destruction of the temple was it was being used in a profane way by the temple rulers at the time. And of course, it was even made worse by the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. When God stood in front of them and tried to teach them and tell them that they were doing things wrong, they crucified him just like they did away with all of the other prophets because They didn't like what the prophets had to say. So, the destruction of Jerusalem was only a part uh, of God's final lowering the boom, you might say, on people who disregarded what he wanted of them. Now, the danger is that many of us are falling into the same trap. We are not looking at what God is trying to tell us. And as our world today is falling apart around us, democracy in itself is falling apart. And the world in itself is falling apart because it is totally ignoring the teachings of Jesus Christ.
So what we want to do here, getting back to the book of Revelation, is we want to look at the fact that in chapters uh, 17 through 20, we had the conquering of the beast from the land, which was the Herodian dynasty, and we also have the conquering of the beast from across the water, which is, was the Roman Empire. Now, someone will definitely think in their minds, well, the Roman Empire wasn't conquered and destroyed by the time of Christ. And that's true. But it was destroyed later by its own lack of attending to the teachings of God in Jesus Christ. And it actually imploded in the end of the 6th century through its own weaknesses, its own uh, self-importance, and the habits that it got into, which were very similar to what we are experiencing today, with people spending so much time on the body and pleasures rather than on the soul. So... With that, and I didn't, don't want to belabor the point, but it's important that we constantly are reminded of our obligation to pay attention to the teachings of Jesus Christ and what he is trying to tell us through Scripture. Okay. People have often asked me, well, give me a small uh, one or two sentence explanation of the book of Revelation. I said, well, I'm a teacher, not a magician. You know, or, a mir or a miracle worker. You know. But if I were to be pressed to give a one or two explanation, I would say that in the voice of Jesus Christ, he would say, through Moses, through the prophets, through Daniel and several other people, and through the church, I have told you over and over and over that in the end result, it will be a choice between the pleasures of the body and the pleasures of eternal life. And the one is acquired by neglect of the teachings of the church, the teachings of Christ, in the church, the other is acquired by observing the laws and the rules and the customs of the, of the church and of Jesus Christ. And it's up to us to make that choice. There is no other choice. It's one or the other. Boy, am I being wound up today. Eh? <laughs> But sometimes those things need to be said and to be uh, told, hopefully, uh, from the pulpit. But unfortunately, we don't get a lot of that. Let's get into the book of Revelation. I want to go back and cover a few things that we didn't quite get to last week. Um, at the end of chapter 
see. I'm sorry. At the end of chapter 20, there are a few things that I'm not so sure we covered well enough that I would like to go back to um, the large uh, white throne and so forth. Chapter 20, verse 11. You've got to remember now that these four chapters, 17 through 20, talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, the conquering of Satan, and the destruction of the Roman Empire eventually. By the way, as I've mentioned before, but I think it bears uh, saying again because it has a part to play in this study of Revelation, is that every country, every empire that has conquered or imprisoned one way or the other, Israel has never succeeded in being a major power afterwards. You go back all the way to Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, of course, doesn't even exist any longer, but uh, the Iran, Iraq, Greece, and Rome. None of those have ever become a major power, which is an indication of God's displeasure with those people uh, overpowering Israel, his chosen people. Now, after having said what I've done, uh, something might arise in your mind, well, then why didn't God wipe out the Jewish people as well? It's because these were the people through whom he wished to begin his plan of salvation or implement his plan of salvation. And he told them over and over and over, I will protect you. That was part of the covenant. All right. And he has given them all kinds of opportunity. And even though they ignored him many, many times, he has still loved his people. It's an indication of loving his people. So Judaism will probably exist till the end of time, along with Christianity. But as I've said before, the end of the world, in my opinion, because it does not say so in the book of Revelation, but in my opinion, the end of the world will not happen until every man, woman, and child has had an opportunity to know and understand who Jesus Christ was and what he stood for and what he did for us. Once that has happened, then there will be no reason for the world to continue. Then God will then uh, call an end to the world as we know it today. Let's go on. Chapter 20, verse 13. After all of the above, 
that I've just said. Uh, it says, next I saw a large white throne and the one who was sitting on it. The earth and the sky had fled from his presence and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, the great and the lowly, standing before the throne and the scrolls were open. Then another scroll was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged according to their deeds by what was written in the scrolls. In other words, our reaching our eternal, our eternal reward in heaven, if that is what our choice is, is done in accordance with the deeds and how we fulfill them on earth. The small scroll that we've talked about in the past. Well, let's go to the large scroll. The large scroll that we had talked about in the past that was mentioned up in the earlier part of the book of Revelation represents God's plan of salvation, which we've talked about over and over, not only here, but in many other sessions. The small scroll is our portion of that plan of salvation. And that is what we're talking about here. It's reminding us again that the small scroll represents our deeds. And think of heaven in a way like a very, very large church where God is sitting up in the sanctuary with Jesus on one side and the Holy Spirit on the other. I don't think of the Holy Spirit as a dove floating around. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you want to be right up front or do you want to be just squeeze into the back door where you can hardly see what's going on? The deeds that we have gone through, fulfilled or not fulfilled, will place us in that church. Now, of course, I'm using all of this as a metaphor because I haven't been there, so I don't know for sure. Uh, but even the writer of the book of Revelation, when he's talking about heaven, he's not been there either even though the visions indicate that he's seen portions of it. But remember, whatever we see, whatever we hear, whatever we talk about regarding heaven has to be done in human terms because there's no other way. But it probably is far more glorious than we can ever imagine because in one of Peter's letters it says, I has not seen and ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him and are faithful to him. Okay. The throne here is obviously the throne of God himself, and the one sitting on it is God himself. All right. There's no uh, actual description. It says the earth uh, and the sky have fled from his presence. They are no longer. And the dead, the dead, whether they're great, small, um, important or unimportant makes no difference in heaven. My mother used to have a saying that I used to cringe when I would hear it, but she'd say, everybody in heaven looks the same in their underwear. <laughs> and I thought, 
Oh, that, you know. <laughs> what she meant is that <laughs> the trappings of earthly life are not important in heaven. Everybody is going to be dressed exactly alike, you know, because we are all going to be treated as God's children who finally made it. Doesn't make any difference. But one of the questions that we're going to be asked is not how much money you made or how much uh, you did for humanity, but who did you bring with you to heaven? Who did you help get in to heaven? And we've got to think about that, particularly towards the end of, uh, we're approaching the end of Lent. We've got to think about taking inventory of where we stand with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's go on. The sea gave up its dead. Then death and Hades gave up their dead. All the dead were judged according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the pool of fire because in heaven there is no death. All right. This pool of fire is the second death. We mentioned that last week. And it is mentioned in this book only twice, right? Here in one of the earlier chapters, the second death, which leads me to believe that in spite of what we think about who's going to heaven and who isn't and so forth, and even the efforts or the lack of efforts of people getting there, we think God is going to give them a second chance. Uh, how that works, if it works, we have no way of knowing. This is not part of uh, the church's official teaching that there will be a second death. But it is mentioned twice in this book, and it kind of tells me that God in his infinite wisdom is going to give people a second chance. But we can't count on that. So you've got to be extremely careful. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the pool of fire. One time a woman asked me, well, how do you get your name in that book? <laughs> and I it kind of threw me because I had not thought about it, you know, in those exact words. But afterwards, in giving it some, some, some serious thought, we get our name into that book. When we accept Christ, when we deliberately accept Christ as our Lord and Savior and want to follow him, not only just following, but witnessing. Following means that you are observing all of the teachings of Christ to the best of your ability. And each of us has different abilities, different talents, different strengths and weaknesses. And God uses all of that. So you cannot compare yourself to your neighbor or anyone else. You have to deal directly with who you are now 
in relationship to what Jesus wants of you. And you do that through prayer. Finding out what God wants of you personally. So that is where it is important to understand what the teachings are of Christ and how he wants you as an individual to apply them. And they could be different for each of us because we all have different talents and abilities. And we all have shortcomings and limitations. And so you cannot compare. You must really work with God and he will let you know that for sure. Let's go on. Chapter 21. The new heaven and the new earth. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The former heaven and the former earth have passed away. Now that sounds rather ominous in a way, but Jesus himself has told us that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not ever pass away. I also saw the holy sea uh, that was no more. And the city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, keep in mind that heaven is not a physical place. Heaven is the act of being in the presence of God. And that should be so sufficient that nothing else is important, nothing else is needed, nothing else will affect you. So the whole idea is you are in the presence of God, which is the ultimate of being. So the writer of the book of Revelation can only explain that in earthly terms. And so that is why we have it written as a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of the sky. When we get up there, we're going to say, well, gee, it doesn't look like what the book of Revelation told us about. You know? Well, remember that this is apocalyptic language or apocalyptic literature and Nothing is quite the same uh, in this form of writing as it is in reality. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling is with the human race. God is with us, and we are in the presence of God. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will always be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death or mourning, wailing or pain, for the, older, for the old order has passed away. The one who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. I thought, hmm... What's he going to do? How could he make all things new? But remember, Paul tells us that 
we, once we have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, we become a new creation. So this is mentioned several times in Paul's letter, particularly the letter to the Romans and also Corinthians. We become a new creation. We are made new through the efforts and the whole idea of giving ourselves to Christ. That is being a new person. And a lot of people are fearful of that because they feel that they're going to have to give up things that they have. And that's not necessarily true. What giving up, what the submission of your mind and heart and soul to Christ really means is that you're welcoming his uh, domination uh, over you and you're willing to accept whatever he asks of you. Now that takes a little bit of, of effort, a little bit of prayer. It can be a little scary. Yeah, I admit, I've been there. But once you do, once you accept and live that way, your life really is changed. Your right life really becomes new. And it's not, you know, one day it's this way and the next day it's that way. It's so gradual you don't realize it. But you welcome it. Let me give you a little example. I don't like talking about myself, but in some ways, you know, I guess I know myself better than anything else. You know that or most of you know that a year or so ago, a little over a year, I broke my arm and, and uh, it was devastating for a while because I had fallen and the shock, in addition to breaking the arm, the shock really uh, affected me physically uh, all over. I couldn't even get out of bed alone without some help. Thank God for my daughter and my son who were with me for over three weeks before I started to get back into condition. But I realized that then that because I was living alone and in a community that there was no interaction among the residents, uh, I had to do something. And in a prior situation looking at various uh, independent living facilities or assisted living facilities for the benefit of someone else, uh, I came across Misty Wood. And many of you may know it there on uh, Pleasant Grove Boulevard. And to make a long story short, I moved in there almost a year ago. And for the first few weeks, I thought, oh, Lord, did I really do the right thing, you know? Here I am, I had my own place, now I've got a little bit of regimentation, but I've got a lot of conveniences and so forth. And oh Lord, you know, I was really down in the dumps for a while. But as I prayed, God really lifted my spirits. And I started making friends, which I really had before in the way of close neighbors. And I enjoyed the interaction of the people and the activities. Didn't care for the food much, but, you know, <laughs> that was beside the point. 
But I've been there almost a year now, and I can really see God working in my life. Uh, I've become <laughs> um, known by most of the people there, uh, partly because I'm willing to learn their names and say hello to them, Mr. So-and-so, or Mary, or John, or whatever, all right? And people like that. And then I've been asked by management to do a few other things. Little by little, I can see God working in my life. And I'm enjoying it. I really feel companionship and being useful. Where outside of teaching, in my prior life, living in this condo for six years, I just kind of felt isolated and, you know, what is life all about? So the fall, in a way, was a catalyst. And the fall itself wasn't that important. It was that darn brace I had to wear for six weeks. That was the real problem. Anyways, but I can see God working in my life and I'm beginning to like it. And I think all of you, if you take take the plunge, so to speak, ask God what he wants of you. And I think if you follow it sincerely, you'll enjoy it. Okay. Let us go on. One of the seven angels who held the seven bowls, filled with the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He took me in spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, this is not the Jerusalem that is over in Israel today. All right. This is a mystic idea of what heaven is going to be like. It gleamed with the splendor of God. Its radiance was like that of a precious stone, like jasper, clear as crystal. And it goes on and on and on about uh, its building and so forth. If you read the uh, book of Ezekiel, as you were instructed to do, and I don't know, did you all do it? Sure, sure. Anyways, this is practically a repeat word for word. The precious stones mentioned here are also mentioned up front of this book of Revelation uh, about the garments of God. I think it's in uh, chapter 3 or 4. Okay. Uh, they represent different uh, elements of nature and so forth uh, but they show here that God is above all of that kind of thing all earthly possessions regardless of how great or beautiful or how expensive or whatever they are uh, the holy city was made on the foundation of the apostles uh, the gates of twelve gates each of them named after one of the 
12 tribes of Israel and the foundation stones, 12 of them, each one of them on the apostles. Okay, that is where we get the idea of uh, our church being founded on the foundation of the apostles, and that's where the word apostolic comes from and what it means. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. You've all heard that many times. It's at the end of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed as well. It means that it, the church of God, Jesus did not write anything of his own. He depended on the apostles to write that. And so we have four gospels and several letters written by various people that represent the word of God. The one who spoke to me held a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city was square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 1,500 miles in length and width and height. 1,500 miles. All right. But you've got to remember, if billions of people are going to be there in heaven, it's going to be crowded. And in one of the books I read, and this is one of those love-hate relationships I have with one of the writers, uh, this says here, it uh, is the same uh, length, width, and height. So if, if it is 15 miles high, that's a pretty high building, right? And that means that, <laughs> I don't know where he got his cal calculations from, but it would be like something like 8,800 billion people. A little crowded. Well, I, I, I don't think we need to worry about that one way or the other. First of all, in heaven, it is a spiritual place. We won't have bodies. But on the other hand, we have a belief in our faith of the resurrection of the body. And if our body is resurrected, it's got to be some place on some ground, right? We have no idea what that is all about. But I have a theory. Would you like to hear my theory? This is not God's teaching. This is not the church's teaching. It is just old Mel's theory. You know that there are all kinds of planets out there in the universe. They all seem to be kind of barren, nothing on them. Well, my theory is that at some point in time, they will all come together and be the land that our bodies have been resurrected for. In a way, yeah. But, the, you know, there's, there's something to that, I feel. 
It helps us to at least put to rest this idea of if all of our bodies are resurrected, that is, all of those who accepted Christ and went to heaven, one way or the other, one time or another, there is that little interlude called purg purgatory. But if our, those bodies are all resurrected, they've got to be someplace. They've got to be, have some space, right? So I think those planets will eventually be used. But again, don't go out and say, you know, the church says because Mel said it, you know. No, no, no. That's why I have to be very careful when I uh, give my personal opinion. Okay. It says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gave it light, and its lamp was the Lamb. Well, that makes sense. We have churches. The Jewish people had the temple. And it was a place to go and worship God. Whether they used it that way or not, uh, we know that not as they should have. When we go to church, do we use the church as a meeting place to worship God? Or do we go there just to fulfill an obligation? Or just because my spouse, you know, said I had to and dragged me there? Or, you know, that's what my mother did, so that's what I'm doing. We have to, I think, and this is a good time to do it during Lent. Why do we do what we do? Because it is not so much the magnitude of what we do, good or bad, it's the reason why. The reason why is far more important than the action itself. Because many people spend a great deal of time on serving the church. But when they get to the church, particularly during the Mass, do they really worship God? Or are they fulfilling some self-need? And I dare say that there are a lot of people who are very active in the church out of the need for being active rather than for the need to worship. And again, it goes back to not the action so much, but the reason why we fulfill that action. Let us go on. Then the angel showed me the river of life-giving water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of its street, on either side of the river grew the tree of life that produces fruit twelve times a year. Once each month, 
The leaves of the trees were served as medicine for the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will look upon his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. No will they need light. Excuse me, the misprint here it says no, but nor will they need light uh, from the lamp or sun. For the Lord God shall give them light, and then they shall reign forever and ever. Sounds pretty nice. Yeah. And again, what it's trying to say is that heaven is more important to be understood as being in the presence of God rather than who's going to be there or who isn't. Uh, what will the conditions be? I heard people say, well, all we're going to do is sit and worship God. That's going to be boring. Well, not really, because the interaction that is generated between you and God during that worship will fulfill you to the point where nothing else will be of importance. You ever think of it that way? We shouldn't be so concerned with I had a friend that used to say, well, if so-and-so is going to be in heaven, I don't want to be there. And I thought, hmm, how, how short-sighted that is. Uh, and it tells me you're, you're thinking of heaven as, well, you know, like the city park or something. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, it's far more than that. But it is the end of any struggle or strife. It is the end of colds and uh, flus and having to worry about your next meal and pleasing the boss and all of that kind of stuff. Yes, that would sound uh, rather monotonous if that were here on earth. But with the presence of God being there in front of us, um, I don't see how it could be anything but extremely pleasing to the body. Any questions? No questions? Hello, are you there? <laughs> A cubit is uh, the distance from the elbow to the tip of the fingers for the for, for a, the average man. All right, which be which would be approximately eighteen inches. But this says miles. No. Yeah. No miles. Yeah. No. But the temple itself was built on the basis of cubits, all right? Yeah, and it was a perfect square, just like this says, 15 miles, you know, 
wide and, and high and so forth and so on. But the temple was built as a perfect square, uh, approximately 18 feet in each direction. Yeah. And, and many of the temples in uh, Rome and Greece reflect that. Well, remember, the Holy of Holies was uh, the main part of that temple, and the rest of it were in the outer courts. The sacrifice in the Temple of Jerusalem was not inside. God forbid, you know, the odor would have been extreme of all those animals being uh, burned up. No, the altar was actually outside. Yeah. Many people don't think about it that way. But yes, the altar was outside, not inside. Yeah. So the temple itself wasn't a very large building. It was the outer courts that were, and there were several outer courts. You know, separating men and women, separating Jew from Gentile, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Well, that's true. That's always been a belief that um, human beings could not look upon God and live. Really, that is a kind of a, not so much a misnomer, but a wording that is mis. Uh, used in a way. We, act, we actually have to be dead before we can witness or see God. And remember, God is pure spirit, so he wouldn't have a face. God forbid. <laughs> God forbid that he'd have a face like mine, you know, but especially after that one. Uh, uh, so, again, this is human words used to explain a divine concept. So you have to be very careful and you can't count on it to be exactly as the words in the book say. And that goes for, for many things. The book of Revelation, as I've said many, many times, and you have to keep it in mind, it is written in the apocalyptic form. And you have to be careful that many of the words don't mean exactly, uh, or have the same meaning as we would interpret those words today. You have to look at the, the metaphor uh, or some other representation in many ways. Okay. But you're right in understanding what it is saying there that after everything is over, we will be able to see God in some form, in some way. Yeah. Okay. Any other? Yes, ma'am. No. Born again uh, really is referring to when we accept Christ initially as Lord and Savior. That is what is really referred to as born again. And that's not so much a Catholic concept as it does come from the Protestant churches. But there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I'm not implying that there's anything wrong. In fact, I really like the idea of it being, uh, of the term itself, 
because it fits in with Paul's writings. We are a new creation. We are born again. And it comes, the term comes from uh, John's Gospel, chapter 2, on the story of uh, Nicodemus approaching God at, uh, in the evening. And, of course, the word or the term in the evening is uh, emphasized because it is referring to in John's Gospel as he's coming sort of out of ignorance uh, or lack of, I should say more politely, out of uh, a lack of understanding. And Christ is telling him that uh, unless a man is be being born again, uh, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus misunderstands and thinks that he has to, has to go through you know, the whole birth process with his mother. That's not what Christ meant. Christ means that your life, your spiritual life, has to go through a renewal process. That is accepting Christ. So the whole idea of being born again comes from our initial accepting of Christ, not so much at the end. Yes, Madge? Uh, well, but now if you're a convert and you have to sort of get yourself in tune for the way you haven't lived, so why wouldn't you be born again? Well, as I said, born again is referring to that initial step that you're taking to firmly start living according to the teachings of Christ. All right. So basically, we have to be born again and again and again and again. I mean, you know, because we're constantly... Yes, you have to constantly renew your faith. Because we mess up and then we... Yeah. yeah, and your ideas and everything change. Sure, and that that's the whole purpose of worshiping. You know, you go through that born-again process every day if you are truly worshiping God. And God is pleased with that kind of thing. Well, it just turns your whole life around. Amen. Yes. That's the whole idea of turning your life around. Right. Yeah. In fact, in fact, that is the theological definition of repentance. It comes from the uh, Greek word metanoia, meaning to turn your life around. Well, you actually feel even different. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, yes, that's true, but it takes the mental uh, idea first. Water and the Spirit is the outward manifestation of that through baptism. All right. Uh, but look how many children, you know, or people are baptized as infants. They never go through that in a knowledgeable way uh, of the baptism. I certainly don't remember my baptism, obviously, three or two or three weeks after I was born. Confirmation, yes. Confirmation, uh, the word itself, comes from confirming our baptismal vows. Yes. Um, how, how does that correspond, talking about born again and so on, uh, with the baptism then of the babies and so on, uh, us are children. In other words, children that die young. Where are we? I mean, anywhere to even 21. 
and I'm going out of my belly. If you're, you're talking about being born again, the personal born again relationship, what happens to those maybe in that period of time where they haven't had their well, as Holler just pointed out, that's why we have the sacrament of confirmation. Because the sacrament of confirmation confirms the pledge that our parents made for us as infants when we were initially baptized. So basically, up to confirmation, if anyone passes away, they've had this born again experience? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And again, it's a mental decision that you have made. Some people never get around to that, unfortunately. Uh, but again, I'm not saying because you don't actually, you know, have a day, and I hate to hear people say, well, I was saved on June the 21st, you know, 19, whatever. Uh, uh-uh. You are saved daily, every time you recommit yourself to Christ. And it doesn't have to be a formality because it has to be a mental, spiritual decision. Unfortunately, uh, so many people get hung up in the rules and the laws and so forth and I've never felt that that was of primary importance. Rules and laws are meant to guide us, but not restrict us that we have to do it this way and no other way. Each of us can approach God in a way that is comfortable for us, but it's important that the sincerity be there rather than the form or the words. Is that important? Is that understandable? Yeah. Okay. Yes, Mike. Uh, I understood, right, my understanding was when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, that I guess baptism would be the beginning of, of your relationship or your acceptance of Christ, but I thought that it, that, uh, it was understood that if you weren't baptized, then you wouldn't uh, be accepted in heaven. Well, again, we're talking about formalities there. All right. The whole idea of being born again is a mental decision. You, and of course, that's an inward concept. The outward concept is going through the actual baptism. For example, let me give you something that is a little clearer to understand, I think. Going to confession, which I recommend all of you do between now and Easter, whether you have committed any serious sin or not, the idea of going is an outward expression of your inward sincerity. So if you have committed a sin and you go to confession with the sincere understanding that you wish to be forgiven for that. You've already been forgiven. But your outward action of the going 
to confession and confessing the sins to a priest is an outward expression. Remember, all sacraments have an inward sign and an outward sign, a spiritual sign and uh, an outward manifestation, I should say, which is a better way of presenting it. The idea has to come first and then the action. And you have to have really both of those. But, for example, supposing you've committed a serious sin or something that you feel is serious and you're on your way to, con to confession but you have a serious automobile accident and you're prevented from getting there. God has already known that. God already accepts your confession interiorly. So, again, it's far more important that we understand the interior idea, concept, and the idea of, of sorrow. The outward expression is only the fulfillment of that in accordance with the understanding or the teachings of the church. But I thought the reason we baptize them, since they can't make that decision on their own, was because we believe that uh, it was necessary for salvation. But it, it would just be the beginning of, of uh, accepting Christ, even though you can't really make a choice. Sure, so. yeah. But, you know, as good parents, you want the very best for your children. And that's why you have them inoculated on various uh, diseases. All right? Baptism is the same kind of thing for a spiritual reason. You want to baptize them so that they have the benefits of the sacrament uh, to help ward them off of sin. So it's the same kind of thing. Any other questions? Yes? No, I was just going to say, is, I was always taught that baptism removed original sin. Yes, but it's far more important than that. Unfortunately, a lot of people feel that that's it and there is nothing else. And that's not true. Baptism is the what we call a sacrament of initiation. That's what a, the <coughs> baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist are sacraments of initiation. They begin to get us into a relationship with Christ. But in addition to removing the consequence, not the guilt, we are not guilty of Adam and Eve's sin but we are subject to the consequences of that sin, which is Satan, you know, all kinds of weaknesses, etc., etc. But the church is getting away from saying that baptism is the removal of, of uh, original sin because there's a great deal more to it than that. Okay. So, you know, it's the entree into a new relationship with Christ. Yeah. Chet? The, um, I sometimes listen to this uh, preacher of baptism. Oh, 
<laughs> well, you started the, uh, by the Bible study, because you know they're really into the Bible. But anyway, they seem to separate deeds from acknowledging Christ as your Savior. Uh, if I've got it right, if you acknowledge Christ as your Savior, man, you've got to think that's all there is to it. And it sounds like you can do any dang thing you want. Yeah, the interesting thing I see back in the book, uh, it seems that your deeds, what's in the book? The, the, well, probably have the bad things and the good things, but would you think you'd like to have more good things going on, like the deeds that you've done on earth as to your credit? Go back to chapter 20, verses uh, 12. Then another scroll was opened. This is the small scroll, the book of life. The dead will be judged according to their deeds. All right? So, yes, many of the Protestant churches, and this was one of the problems that Martin Luther based his break uh, from the Catholic Church back in the 50s. 16th century, all right? Uh, he felt that all we had to do was accept Christ, and that was it. And if we accepted Christ on June 21st, 1842, that was all that was necessary. Nothing, whatever we did after that wasn't important. That's right. That's exactly what, that's what James tells us in his letter, that Faith without deeds is empty. It's self-serving. So you have to put the two together. Uh, it's, uh, it's not an either-or thing. The two go together. Uh, if you have accepted Christ, then he is telling you, you have to do this, thus, and so. It means that you have to perform deeds. Jennifer? No. The faith, the faith is empty. Yes. That is signified by the woman at the well with the empty water jar. Yeah. Her faith is empty. Yes. As Jennifer, for those of you who may not have heard, if you accept Christ, truly accept Christ, then you will want to do what he's told us. Love your neighbor. And how do you love your neighbor? is through deeds, good deeds. Okay? Um, that should be an automatic progression. If you say that you've accepted Christ but don't want to bother with anybody else, and there are people that feel that way, then your faith is empty. And you have not truly lived up to what your faith is supposed to be telling you. Uh, any other questions? Yes, Conchita. Uh, 
that's I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, the whole idea of baptize, I mean, of uh, blessing yourself with holy water when you come into the church. It is as as Conchita just said. It is to remind you of your baptism commitment. That's the whole purpose. It's not to wash your forehead, you know, uh, or to get the baby uh, blessed or anything else. It is to remind you of your baptismal commitment to live according to the teachings of Jesus Christ and his church. Uh, and uh, also, as she said, there are uh, the renewal the renewal of your baptismal vows is uh, part of the Saturday vigil, the Saturday before Easter is part of that service of renewing your baptismal vows. And the thing is, you, yeah, you can stand up there and say the words, but if you don't mean it, the words are empty. So part of your worship in church it should be a mental connection with God as to what you're doing. Again, what you're doing is not near as important as to why you're doing it. And with the why, you have to have an understanding. That's what's important. Any other questions? Next week will be our last week. Sad to say. Um, when I start out a 10-week session, I often think, boy, am I going to last 10 weeks? You know? And yet, it's gone by rather quickly. Next week, we have just a little bit left in this book that I want to cover. It's a good part, a nice part. I want to do a recap of the main points of this book of Revelation. And I welcome your questions. There are still many questions, I'm sure, in your mind that haven't been quite cleared up, and I would like to see if we can clear those up. So next week, there, the small portion that is left, chapter 22, verse 5 through 21, or 6 through 21, whatever, uh, won't take us very long, but I'd like to go through... Uh, the main points that I feel of this book. Because often you're going to be asked about the book, and it's important that you know the main points. A lot of people are so confused, and that's why I didn't have you actually have a little copy of this book, uh, because I'd rather you listen to what I read, even though I don't read very well, but nevertheless, uh, I wanted you to just kind of stick to the scripture itself, and then we'll talk about the meaning. Right? In summarizing the book of Revelation, uh, there are some important points that I think are worthy of knowing and understanding in case you are ever asked uh, by outsiders, uh, and I mean people who uh, have not had the opportunity to uh, take a course like this. 
um, so that you can tell them without too much trouble. So I encourage all of you to, to come next week uh, because I think it will be worthwhile and hopefully you'll find it interesting. Okay. Any other questions, comments, whatever? Let's, let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this time together. More importantly, we thank you for the gift of faith. Help us to take inventory of our faith, to see where we stand with the beliefs that have been expressed here and elsewhere. Help us to really ask ourselves if we understand what our faith is all about. And do we really mean what we say? So we ask your blessing on our efforts, particularly in the remainder of Lent and of the coming great season of Easter. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.